Even as the armed forces develop hypersonic missiles, the Missile Defense Agency pursues a project to develop measures to counteract enemies' hypersonics. But the program is having some oversight problems and technical risks. For details, we turn to the Acting Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the Government Accountability Office, John Sawyer. Mr. Sawyer, good to have you on. Thank you. Let's talk about this program at the MDA. Is it something that is completely in the research stage? Do they have products they're delivering to the military? Or is this something that is kind of in post? Where does it stand at this point? All of the above. The agency is responsible for acquiring and developing defense capabilities for threats. So at any point in time, they are delivering assets, they are performing testing, they are acquiring, developing anywhere throughout that acquisition process. So the answer is all of the above. Now, they have countermeasures that I guess are more mature for missiles that don't go so fast that might be coming from an enemy. Where does the hypersonic defense stand? It looks from the report as if they have been able to develop glide interceptors that kind of catch these things in mid-flight. Yes, sir. They have. And hypersonic hypersonic weapon, as you just alluded, really relates to uh, weapons that can travel really fast five times or greater than the speed of sound. That is uh, one of the characteristics, not only just ballistic missiles, but hypersonic. Another thing interesting about a hypersonic missile is that it is able to uh, travel at lower altitudes than a ballistic missile. And the third thing that would distinguish a hypersonic is that it has the ability to maneuver during flight. In other words, it's almost like a baseball pitch, that uh, that curveball, <laughs> where you think that curveball is going one direction, but it has the, the ability to maneuver during flight. And that is the challenge that the Missile Defense Agency has in fielding a capability that can outperform the threat. And that is where they are with their hypersonic defense. And is this something that is developed entirely by the government, or are there contractors involved in the countermeasure development? This is something that is developed with the government being the overseer of the project. However, the government, DOD, the Missile Defense Agency, does rely on contractors, contractors to uh, assist with the um, development, product development, the uh, technology development. Currently, with the glide phase interceptor, you have uh, Lockheed Martin is involved, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon. They are all, um, uh, they have contracts and they are looking at concept design and risk reduction. There's also another uh, effort that uh, is used for hypersonic or being considered for hypersonic defense, and that is the hypersonic and ballistic tracking space sensor, HBTSS is what it's called. And you also have contractors involved in that process. L3 Harris and Northrop Grumman are two contractors that I can think of that are involved in assisting the Department of Defense and the Missile Defense Agency in fielding capabilities to protect our homeland, our allies abroad. 
We're speaking with John Sawyer. He's Acting Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the Government Accountability Office. So it sounds like the agency then is developing sensor capabilities. There must be tons of software assessment and processing that happens here. And in the case of the Glide Interceptor, that's kind of a form of a missile itself, correct? Correct. Correct. The Glide Interceptor is just that. It is a missile designed to intercept a hypersonic weapon. As I mentioned earlier, uh, in order to defeat a hypersonic weapon, you need to field a capability that is four or five steps ahead or able to outperform that threat. And that is exactly what the glide phase interceptor is being designed to accomplish. It is a missile that is designed to intercept a threat. And in looking at this program, then, I guess maybe it's a collection of sub-programs, what were your main findings? Because it seems like you were concerned a lot about whether there is technical oversight from an independent point of view that is really needed here. Our main findings in in our review, our assessment, this is the 19th year that we have performed the assessment of the Missile Defense Agency with a specific emphasis on assessing what progress has been made in achieving delivery and testing goals? What process has been made in delivering assets and meeting their testing goals? And the second thing that we looked at was just what we have just talked about, the hypersonic counterweapons. Our main findings uh, this year was consistent with prior years that each year MDA plans to deliver certain assets. They plan to perform certain testing, but they were unable to meet their goal. On average, over the past five years, the MDA agency has been able to meet like 52% of its testing goals. And we believe that additional attention should be given to that area because those are areas that that are funded and budgeted for, but they have demonstrated a history of being unable to meet those goals. Some of those goals or some of those delays or are, are acceptable, but we just believe in an area like this where you are constantly fielding capabilities to mitigate threats that you you need to have the most accurate information available, accurate information as it relates to cost, as it relates to risk, to enable you to to go fast. And that's one of the terms used, to go fast in order to meet the warfighter's requirements. Because the hypersonic enemy situation itself is sort of a moving situation because they're developing greater and different capabilities all the time. So it sounds like they need some flexibility, and to do that, you need that testing capability. Absolutely, absolutely. That is exactly what testing is designed to do. Testing is is that key tool that is designed to assist decision makers with demonstrating system performance. How are our programs able to perform in certain scenarios, uh, uh, integrated together? The, uh, the One of the goals uh, that makes the system work is that they integrate the elements or programs and test is all the more important to give management that information to assist in better informed decisions. Well, then let's just summarize your main recommendations then. 
in this report, we issued three recommendations. Our recommendations really centered on ensuring that management performed or did what it needed to do. The, the recommendations were directed to the Secretary of Defense. And what we asked was that ensure that the agency performs the cost estimates, uh, an independent cost estimate to know what it will cost to really field or to uh, acquire these these programs that you're trying to acquire. We also felt that um, there was a need for an independent technical risk assessment, which all of these things, uh, according to best practices, leading practices, these items should be performed uh, before product development to or, or to assist management in making better informed decisions. And then lastly, we had a recommendation that as it relates to the HBTSS, which is a sensor that is that re- involves space, that there are also other agencies involved in space work. And we believe that there should be better coordination, a memorandum of understanding to ensure that the Department of Defense, MDA, has a plan in place to manage duplication and overlap. You want to make sure that the agencies leverage what other agencies may be doing and not to to duplicate or overlap what they are doing. Those were the recommendations in our report. We have also um, summarized recommendations that we have issued in the past 10 years. Since 2010, GAO has issued um, 61 recommendations to help improve missile defense acquisitions. While MDA has made considerable progress in implementing those recommendations, 23 of them remain open. And we will continue to uh, monitor the corrective actions that the Defense Department and MDA will put in place to address those recommendations so that we can uh, give the agency credit and properly uh, identify those recommendations as closed. And just a detail question before we close that might or might not be within the scope of what you looked at. When calling for independent technical assistance, and I think that's something the MDA promised it would do and still needs to do on hypersonic defense, is the industry in hypersonics mature enough that there is someone they could turn to for independent technical evaluation? Oh, thank you. That is a good question. That is something that our report did not address, but there are offices, there are um, departments within the Defense Department who have responsibility for overseeing and performing these independent technical risk assessments. And I believe that the department has a process designed that would uh, effectively give them the information needed to assist in these decisions. John Sawyer is Acting Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. 
She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. Yes, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.